The opportunity to come together again is a great one indeed. The blessing that has been provided to us to assemble, these songs have already lifted our spirit. They've encouraged our soul. They have set before us the greatness of what it means to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank Brother Don as well as all of our song leaders who direct us so capably. And we're thankful also for the opportunity to look into a section tonight of the Word of God. You probably have already noticed we're going to be reflecting on eagles tonight. We're going to think somewhat about them. I might point out that lesson text taken from Isaiah 40, 31 is in fact a very beautiful and a very encouraging passage. And we're going to reflect upon that somewhat as we proceed in the lesson tonight. It's good to see each and every one here. We hope that each has had a very lovely day in the sight of the God of heaven. This next slide is one that is intended to serve as an introduction. If we're going to think about eagles, I would think we ought to at least give some attention to the basis in which the Word of God makes mention of that Word. You know, from time to time, I, I try to bring lessons that can make a connection between things we commonly observe in the world around us and particular revelations as found in the Word of God. Now, a few months ago, we looked at worms, and we found that even in ref reflection upon worms, there are great biblical truths and eternal ones connected to worms. I might point out that tonight, as we give thought to eagles, we too will find much that we can appreciate and use to our great benefit as we think about them. May I take just a moment and perhaps say the obvious? Now, the eagle is the symbol of our country. Our founding fathers made the selection. History would seem to record that it wasn't the initial choice, I admit, and it certainly wasn't Ben Franklin's choice. But it nonetheless was the bird chosen as the symbol for our, for our nation. And we've each seen pictures of bald eagles. In fact, even in the environs in which we live, we know that there are those who, who even cameras, are made available to us in which we can witness them, their nest, the characteristics of their young. But that's not really our subject tonight. Could I point out, when the Bible makes reference to eagles... Is that the kind of eagle it has in mind? Is it the bald eagle? Or would it perhaps be something else? This next slide will move us in that direction. It does so like this. That word that occurs in our translations of the Bible, some form of the word eagle astoundingly occurs 34 times in the Bible. Now that's no trivial number really. Because when you and I think about the passages in which that reference to eagles can occur, we are pretty much amazed at noting this. The first occurrence is Exodus 19.4. And there it was the situation that the children of Israel had just recently come out of Egyptian bondage, and they had arrived at Mount Sinai. And there, in that passage, God makes the statement to them, I bore you up on eagles' wings. He's the one that provided them with the necessary escape from Egypt. He had, in fact, sustained them through that point in the wandering so far. The very last occurrence is all the way in Revelation. In Revelation 12, 14, we have in the midst of that interesting prophetic passage the, the notion one more time about the appearance of that word eagle. As you look forward on that slide, may I point out the following. Although you and I tend to think about the bald eagle, in that part of the world, that's not the eagle that typically lives 
and occurs there. I list for you on the slide, and I think it's kind of interesting. Our association of Tennessee Tech might bring to mind a different eagle. It's the golden eagle, and that's the one that is far more common in that part of the world. So I wonder if in these instances and in these places wherein the Word of God makes mention of the eagle that maybe the thing that would have come to mind to those who first heard those passages might well have been the golden eagle. I've listed a few things about golden eagles as the Word of God reveals them to us. In Proverbs 30, verse number 19, we find at least a passage that seems to speak rather notably about that eagle you and I might well recognize as the golden eagle. But it was a majestic creature. It wasn't uncommon for the wingspan on a golden eagle to stretch eight feet from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. Now you and I know quite well that kind of wingspan would allow a great deal of power connected to flight and also connected to the pursuit of prey. But to say that another way might be this. What about the nests? In Jeremiah 49, verse number 16, we have something shared with us about the nesting location of these eagles, and it is said to be high. It was well known that these eagles would construct their nests in places very difficult for anything else to get to. And they were rather high, and in fact, that location and that description was used by the prophet as a reminder of what God is able to do amongst the, the nations. I might say that this way. These birds were known for their swiftness in flight. With that kind of wingspan and the power able to be mustered and maintained in flight, they could espy their prey, swoop down at great speed, capture that prey, then fly back off into the heaven. That swiftness is mentioned in Jeremiah 4.13 and mentioned again in Lamentations 4.19. And that swiftness is a reminder of what was known rather well to those people and probably easily imaginable to you and me as well. Now before I leave that slide, I would be quick to say this. There's at least one passage in which the reference to the eagle, it seems clear enough, would identically relate to a bird, not the golden eagle. It would be, it's clear from the context that it's an eagle that would survive on carrion, on otherwise dead animals. You and I might well think of that more along the line of a vulture or a bird again in that family at least. And it seems as though there's a bit of latitude in the way in which the translation might well have presented it. May I say that surely as you look at the two possibilities, we're going to cast a spotlight on the golden eagle because that's the vast majority of the passages in which you and I find that particular reference. On our next slide, I've tried to include a picture of a golden eagle, first in flight, and then a more close-up picture at the bottom right. As you look upon those pictures, you can well appreciate, I think, a bird that at least resembles in some way the bald eagle we're used to. It's just that the crown is a different color. And some of the other aspects of the bird, as I was able to tell, at least have minor differences. But nonetheless, when you and I think about the eagle as the Word of God references it, let's give some more thought to the kind of ways in which those references occur. First, let's look at a text in Obadiah verse number 4. That's the only one chapter book of the Old Testament, but the reference to eagles in that passage 
teaches you and me a rather dramatic lesson. I'd like to highlight it under the banner of humility, but the text reads as follows. Obadiah, verse number 4. That text before us reads, Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. Now that little book of Obadiah is a timeless prophecy against the descendants of Esau, the Edomite peoples. And here they, in fact, were a people very much given to the pride of their location. The Old Testament reminds us that their capital was Petra. It was a rock-ribbed fortress, and they constructed that capital in a location where the only way to get to it was to traverse through a valley, and what they would do is they would perch their soldiers on the opposite sides of the valley, and so no enemy could make its way up to Petra to capture them or to fight against them without them having a rather significant advance warning that they're coming. And they had arrived over the decades to the thought, we are untouchable. Nobody can arrive to this capital city of ours and thwart us or conquer us or in otherwise make trouble for us. Again, there was a one-way into Petra, and they would easily station their soldiers in watch locations so that nobody could slip up on them. Did you notice what God said? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, they portrayed themselves in this high position of unconquerable, absolutely undefeatable. And yet the verse goes on to say, Thence will I bring thee down. The Edomite peoples, you see, were not living as God would have had them to, they were choosing to rebel against God, and he said, despite the fact that you have your capital city in a place like this, and you portray your nest as so high that men can't touch you, I will bring you down. Isn't that a reminder of the greatness of our God? What men may esteem, what men may portray or picture, God's viewpoint could be quite different. The next verse goes on to say this, if thieves come to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? God makes a comparison. You know, when thieves come to a person's house, and my family and I have had the misfortune of suffering beneath that, many of you have as well. Someone breaks into your home when you're not there. They may take a number of things. May I ask, do they take every single thing in the house? Well, of course not. In haste, they take out a few valuable things as they estimate it, but they leave behind a whole lot of other things. God says in verse number 5, Thieves leave something. When I crush Edom and bring Edom down in judgment, I'm going to leave nothing. And then he makes mention of grape gatherers. You and I are familiar with gathering grapes. You pick the grapes off the vines, and you no doubt gather many, but on occasion you'll drop one. Or on occasion you may overlook one amidst those vines, and it's not as if you purposefully choose not to gather it. You just miss it. God says grape gatherers will leave something. When I destroy Edom, I'm going to leave nothing. History records that's exactly what happened. 
when the marauding invaders finally made their way to it. They not only captured Edom, they utterly destroyed it. Jeremiah 49 details somewhat about that. And we even have here a portrait in the little book of Obadiah about the occurrence and reality of that event. But could I revisit the thought? What about a lesson on humility? Isn't it true that the Word of God makes use of eagles in other connections like this? May I invite you to consider Daniel chapter 4, verse 33? As you look at the major prophet Daniel, we'll not certainly have the time to read the fullness of that fourth chapter, but could I just highlight at least that one verse? Daniel chapter 4, verse 33. It says, The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, and his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. Isn't that a fascinating chapter when you and I remember that? Here was the leader of the Babylonian Empire, a man named Nebuchadnezzar, but he was a rebel against the thoughts of God at that point in his life. In that verse, we appreciate that the sentence of judgment from the God came upon him, and for a period of time, the text will tell us seven years, he lived with an infirmity connected to a kind of thing, at least on occasion, known amongst the human family. And you may notice in that verse we just read that his nails grew out, things on his skin grew like eagles' feathers. We learned something about eagles. God was not pleased with the haughtiness and arrogance descriptive of the way of Nebuchadnezzar, and God's judgment turned his mind around. After that period of seven years, he humbled himself before the God of heaven. He had a very different tune to play in light of the recognition of God, and isn't that a reminder to all of us? Let's close that slide then with the final observations. Proper estimation of ourselves. Romans 12, verse 3, Let no man think more of himself than he ought to think. It's incredibly useful to love ourselves, no doubt about that. Jesus said, Love your neighbor as yourself. There's nothing wrong from the perspective of God that we have a healthy consideration of ourself. But may I say, there's a line that can be crossed. If you and I step across that line into personal arrogance, pride in which we condescendingly look upon others, and perhaps even more seriously, we try to exalt ourselves on an equal par with God. I suspect there are very few people that would openly admit behaving in that latter way, but isn't it true that it can be a very real occurrence? Have you ever spoken with someone, or maybe you and I on occasion have been afflicted with it? We read something in the Word of God, but then we reach the conclusion, I believe I know better than God in this instance. I believe I'm going to do it differently than that. The religious world today is filled with those who, upon reading the text, will nonetheless feel as if they have a better idea. That's never going to be successful, and it's never going to work well, because God's way is always right. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? In the words of Genesis 18.25, it might well then be noted how wonderful it is that we can use an eagle to remind us that though that bird may be able to fly high in the sky and the nest may be there as well, 
The Word of God will use that as a reminder to all of us to make sure that we dwell in humility humbly before the eyes of our Heavenly Father. In Micah 6, verse 8, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to love justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. It is necessary that you and I walk humbly with Him. What about our second lesson? What else does an eagle teach you and me? This next slide portrays it with the word strength. I know we mentioned it earlier, but perhaps it would do well to reflect upon it again. An eagle in flight is a majestic and strong creature again. It wouldn't have been anything unusual for those of that day to see an eagle swoop down and capture some prey of interest and so quickly carry that prey back away. The strength, the element of strength, I would use to remind each of us as Christians, we too have something to say about the matter of strength. In a moment, we're going to make reference to Ezekiel chapter 17, which is a fine study on the strength connected to the eagle. But I might say that we're going to use that in some ways, beginning in the following way. If you'd like to turn to Ezekiel 17, you're more than welcome to do that. I certainly won't read the fullness of that chapter, though much of it's going to connect to what we have before us. I'm going to begin with the first two verses, however. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, put forth a riddle, and speak a parable unto the house of Israel. I would use this as a reminder. Here was a riddle, a saying, a parable, which God commissioned Ezekiel to speak on this occasion. I wonder what this parable is going to be. Beginning in verse number 3, And say, Thus saith the Lord God, A great eagle with great wings, long-winged, full of feathers, which had divers colors, came unto Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. Now you and I know that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly significance or a heavenly meaning. And in this instance, God commissioned Ezekiel to share a tremendous truth, and he did so in the form of this parable involving an eagle. An eagle. Now may I say that the actual literal occurrence is maybe one they could imagine. An eagle would come and perhaps take a particular branch off a tree and use it to construct the eagle's nest. Maybe they had seen this many times. I wonder what the meaning is. If that's the earthly story, what was the meaning? What was the message God was portraying as this eagle came and took this high branch? Verse number 4 says, He cropped off the top of his young twigs and carried it into a land of traffic. He set it in a city of merchants. He took also of the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. He placed it by great waters and set it as a willow tree. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature, whose branches turned toward him, and the roots thereof were under him. So it became a vine, and brought forth branches, and shot forth sprigs. At this point, we have been able to envision what was taking place, what this eagle did, and the consequence of it. We still would wish to know what's the meaning. On that slide, let me connect it to the concept of strength. And then, let's fill in a bit about the meaning. 
Clearly the eagle in the description here was a very strong eagle. The Word of God even identifies it that way. May I pause long enough to say, strength should be, must be, a characteristic of all who would be faithful servants of the Lord. Strength should be a part of that which characterizes you and me. We must not be those blown about with every wind of doctrine. Ephesians 4, verses 12 to 16. We must be, not be those who can be so easily captivated by falsehood or by the foolish choices of others. We must be those, again, who in strength abide beneath the statement of Ephesians 6, verse 10. Stand in the Lord. And again I say stand. We must have strength. That strength will, of course, be connected to our faith, and faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Our strength will then be in connection to the wonderful book that is the book of God. May we thus with excitement yearn for those moments when we can open it, when we can give consideration to it, study it together with those of like precious faith in our assemblies. The Bible is that special to us, isn't it? It is the Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. As you give thought to this parable of Ezekiel 17, it might then be fair to notice that in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, in the very last chapter of that First Corinthian letter, Paul admonished, in fact, insisted to those Corinthian brethren, stand fast. Paul knew that they were in the midst of some dire circumstances and forces that were very strong, and yet he admonished them to quit you like men, to be strong. I trust today that you and I can at least borrow that thought, and maybe an eagle can help remind us that just as the strength of the eagle is highlighted in Jeremiah 49, you and I as Christians must be those known for our strength. Point number three on that slide will ask us to give thought to this. As I move us in that direction, it's going to be this, unclean. Now, you may wonder what connection could there be between the eagle on the one hand and unclean on the other. But nonetheless, it is an easy connection to make due to texts such as Leviticus 11, verse 13. You remember with me that there were a number of foods which were unclean to the Israelites. They were not allowed to eat of them. In fact, the listing was very long. In some ways, it was a much shorter list to list what was clean for them. But the God of heaven took the liberty and the opportunity to rather carefully prescribe for them various animals which were unclean. And by now you may have guessed it. The eagle was unclean. Children of Israel couldn't eat an eagle. They were not able to kill one and eat of it. If they found one dead, they were not able to eat of it, at least lawfully. It was an unclean bird. I use it to say this. Many of us like chicken, and we're quite comfortable with the way it tastes, and we perhaps enjoy it greatly. Many different ways to fix it. 
I suspect an eagle would probably taste a lot like chicken. And yet, although that may have been true, children of Israel still couldn't eat it. That was not permitted by the God of heaven. I use that as a reminder to each of us. God determines thus what's satisfactory. In His Word, He determines what is able to be done. And it doesn't really matter what you and I think differently. We might think we could have done it differently. But may I say, His way is always going to be right. And that same is true not only about things that they were or were not able to eat, but it's also true about the moral aspects of living in this human flesh, isn't it? There are things that God has said are wrong. Doesn't matter how many people may otherwise do it. Doesn't matter how strong the consideration toward it may well be. That doesn't change in any sense and in any way. There are times that in the Christian life, you and I can, in a moment of weakness, perhaps begin to justify something because we see so many others doing it. May I say, doesn't matter how many are doing it. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And nothing about that will ever change. Because the Bible is not changeable. The Word of the Lord endureth forever, 1 Peter 1.25. Thus, as you give thought to some of the modern claims of sexuality and otherwise, there's one that we've mentioned in, in, in days past. Perhaps this is a fitting time to mention it again. Are you aware of the fact that divorce rate is decreasing in our country? That sounds like great news. The flip side of it, however, is not so good. The reason is because more people are living together unmarried. But that's no better. It's fornication. Doesn't matter how many supposed reasons might be given to substantiate that this is the better way to do it. It isn't right. Didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2 that to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. Marriage is the only way to avoid fornication. And so it is that though the human family may have their ideas that may at least encourage a different way of thinking, just as was the uncleanness connected to the eagle, that still was wrong. And any of these other supposed moralities today, they still are not satisfactory to our Heavenly Father, are they? One last thing about the uncleanness is that text that is reminding of us of Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. The absoluteness of God's decrees. The word absolute is such a strong word, isn't it? We think of this which is unbending, unwavering, uncompromisable. And yet that kind of idea was in fact mentioned because the Word of God is tried. Now that word tried signifies that it had been passed through the crucible of God's experience and that it meets every need of the human family, offering to us that which is the revelation of God. One last lesson, and the lesson will be yours. It's on this next slide, and it's under the matter of judgment. I promised you that we would revisit Ezekiel 17 at one point, and this is the time to do it. We've already learned somewhat about what the eagle did by taking the top twig, but notice the eagle also took two additional twigs as well. 
you and I might still wonder, the earthly story is perhaps easy to envision. What's the heavenly meaning behind that? What does the eagle represent? What does the twig represent? The fact took them into a far distant place. What does that represent? Did you notice the mention of the place of merchants? Thankfully, we have a bit later in that chapter some details that remind us about the heavenly meaning connected to that earthly story. I've tried to share with you on the slide a few of the things about it. Could I remind you that the text says the eagle took the highest branch of the cedar. But then we quickly are told that it cropped off the top twigs and carried them off to the city of merchants. At this point, what's next on the slide tells you the following things that the eagle did. The great eagle also took of the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. What was planted grew. It became a spreading vine of low stature. So notice it, not a high tree anymore, a vine of low stature. And now you notice the roots were bent toward the eagle. That's what the text says. At the bottom of that slide, I now point out a few additional things in some of those verses beyond the places you and I just read. Another great eagle appears. So that's two of them now in this particular parable. And the vine bent roots toward that eagle. The question is, would the second direction prosper? Would the vine with roots directed to the eagle, would it prosper or would the vine die? The next slide. I share with you some of the remaining features of that slide. What's the interpretation of this? What does the parable mean? The Word of God reminds us in this chapter that the eagle was representative in that case of the king of Babylon. Now you and I recognize the power and majesty of the Babylonian empire. But note this. The highest branch, we're told, represents the king of Judah. So when the captivity came and... Nebuchadnezzar brought the Babylonian armies. The fact he captured the king of Judah and took him off to a foreign land, that's what the parable was describing, at least in part. But notice, what about the twigs? They were the other princes and the high-ranking leaders in the Judean empire. They too were taken captive. We learn that in 2 Chronicles 36. We also might ask, what was the second eagle? You might be surprised it was the king of Egypt. An odd thing. The children of Israel at that point, when they appreciated the coming of Babylon, they sought to the king of Egypt to help them militarily. They thought that with Egypt assisting them, they'd have enough warfare and enough strength to at least keep the Babylonians at bay. But God, through this parable, says it won't be so. Did you note the way the roots were bent? It is not going to be something that will be prosperous. It will not be something that will, in fact, be workable. Egypt would be no help. None. In fact, we learn Babylon attacked Egypt as well. And in so doing, as you come near the close of that slide, we learn something about the judgeship of God. God had made decree that His own people, due to their sin and due to their rebellion, and due to their wickedness, they were going to be judged. Egypt was going to be no help. The surrounding nations were, be, were to be of no help. 
because God is the judge. Isn't it interesting today that there are people that can fall into a trap such as that? They'll turn in every place for help except the one place where help is to be found. The God of heaven, the nature of the Christ, the character of the church, and yet often we seek help in other places and in other ways from other sources. Did Jesus say, without me, ye can do nothing? John 15, 5. Didn't Jesus say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6? Didn't He say in John eleven twenty five, I'm the resurrection and the life? Maybe we can add to all of that the following statement. Ezekiel 17 is a masterpiece of presentation about an eagle reminding us about the nature of God's judgeship. There's going to come a day when the heavens are going to be rolled up like a garment. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 9 and following. And there's a judgment going to take place. We read about that in texts such as Romans 12, verse 14. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. There's going to be a moment, a time, a position, a reality of judgment. And the eagle is a reminder of that reality. As you and I close that slide before us, the law which shall be set before us leads me to say this. In Revelation 20, verses 11 and following, the books will be opened. The books. As you and I give thought to the fact that it says they will shall be judged out of the contents of those books, we can rest assured that one of those books opened will be that which we call the New Testament. And you and I will be judged in such a way our lives will be measured in connection to that standard. This conclusion slide simply then asks of us to use the eagle in the way we've done it tonight to think of it this way. We've learned about humility. May we always humble ourselves in the sight of God, James 4 verse 10. And in so doing, may we appreciate the strength that can be ours as we stand in the Lord, Ephesians 6, verse 10. With those two, we're then prepared to appreciate that God declares many, many things unclean. Various things approved, pursued, and condoned by the human family. But that doesn't change anything about the God's declaration of them. Those unclean things remind us that God's laws are morally and absolute. Finally, judgment. We recognize that that great day of judgment is an appointed moment. Hebrews 9.27 continues to say, As it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. That day when everything about my life and yours will be laid bare before the eyes of the one before whom nothing could be hidden. Hebrews 4.13 reminds us of that truth. I hope the next time we give thought to an eagle, we perhaps see one in flight or witness a nest of one nearby this location, we might think about the kind of lessons we've learned tonight as it relates to the biblical description of the eagle. A song of encouragement has been selected. We use this as a convenient time, a time of invitation. If there's anyone in this assembly who upon analysis and examination of your life has reached a conclusion that all is not well with your soul. 
you realize that as an alien sinner, it would be thus required of you to believe absolutely in Jesus the Christ, to commit the fullness of your life to Him as you repent of your sins and confess His name as the only begotten Son of God, and be buried in baptism with Him for remission of your sins. We would be delighted to help you, assist you in that way tonight. If you have known the way of Christianity, you have perhaps thrived for a while in it, but perhaps of late, other choices, other decisions, quite foolish in fact, but those have come to be descriptive of your life. Don't remain in that place. Don't you want this strength again? Don't you want to be free from the burden of that judgment in light of a sad reflection that day? We would love to make this opportunity to you tonight. If you are separated as a wayward child of God from the Heavenly Father, first understand your position is being lost. Rush back to His sight in repentance and confession, and we'd be delighted, in fact, desiring very much to pray along with you. Tonight, if we could be of help in those ways, or simply by virtue of sourcing and prayer, we'd be delighted to help you there as well. If we could be of assistance in any of these ways, won't you come? For together we stand and while we sing.